today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 39 and going to verse 53. It can be found in your leaflets or on page 1057 of the Church Bibles. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. They all head out. Good morning, everybody. Why don't we pray? Father, as we turn our attention now uh, to this passage, this word that we just heard Eliza read for us, this word that speaks of the passion of your son, his suffering, his pain, his love. Father, as we look at this, we pray that your spirit would be active in us that he would be taking these words and teaching us of your love and grace, that we might overflow in love for you and for one another. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, no surprise, uh, Easter eggs and Easter buns and all that kind of stuff have been out for who knows how long, I think since about a week or two after Christmas. Uh, But Easter is almost here. And uh, this year we thought we'd do something that we have overlooked in my entire time here. Each year we read through the Passion narrative, those chapters around the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But as I looked at it, I thought, I actually never preached it. Uh, And so we're going to spend some time looking in depth at this wonderful story, this story that probably is so familiar to most of us here. If perhaps you heard this for the first time or you're unfamiliar with it, it's absolutely fantastic that you're here uh, because this really is the nutshell, this is the heart of the, the Christian message. You could have the entire Bible story and if you dropped out this bit, you haven't got Christianity. This is where everything comes to its climax. So much so that when the Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Corinth, he summarised his months and years of ministry in Corinth with these words in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2. 
He said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This part, this message, this passion, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the essential centre of our faith. And what I want to do as we look at this over the next four weeks, I want to explore with you whether this is just a story of what God did then to open the way of salvation for us, the story that saves us, or is it as Paul presents the sum of Christian teaching, the heart and the essential centre, not just to see us saved, but to actually see us grow in our discipleship, in our love and service of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to look at four different weeks, four different passages and four great themes. And this morning, it probably doesn't surprise you to, uh, to discover that we're going to start with a theme of love. And so I thought I'd get out there and I'd explore uh, so I got on the net this week and I watched a TEDx talk. Do any of you guys watch this? Yeah, yeah. These are kind of talks that are done by people, wise sages, who are telling us how to live good lives or other things like this. And this is a fellow by the name of Billy Ward. And he tells us what it is uh, to love and to be loved. He's talking about what his great aim is. I've just got a little snippet of it for you now. So here he is. There's Billy Ward. Here he goes. Well, the same is true for love. If we can begin to make an effort to love and to be loved without any conditions, we will bring a whole new level of meaning to our relationships and to our experience. In case you missed it, if we can begin to make an effort to love and be loved without any conditions we can bring a whole new level of meaning to our relationships and to our experience. Now, who here doesn't want that? Anyone? You're actually just not interested in what he's offering. Okay, let's agree. We're all on the same page then. Sounds great. This whole new meaning, this whole new level. Okay, how does he tell us? He tells us it's not difficult to do, but it requires great thought and courage. Now, do you see that as a slight contradiction? It's not difficult, but it requires great thought and courage. And if we go back to the original quote, what is it? We need to begin to make an effort. So he tells us to love and to be loved is the core, if you explore the rest of his 17 minutes of TEDx talk, uh, you'll find that it's all about loving and being loved, it's something that he tells us the key to is to make an effort. So Trinity Hills this morning, I want you to try hard to be more loving, okay? Because he tells us the key to life is to love and to be loved without conditions. And the answer, the way to do it, according to Mr. Hyde, is to make an effort. So try, okay? You got it? Try harder. You feeling the bird? For some of us, with some people, it's actually not that hard. Because sometimes it's easy to love people, isn't it? Some people, we find them lovable. 
We find them easy to love. But other people, and we all have them, the people who have hurt us, the people who have abused us, the people who've rejected us, the people who have let us down. It is hard to love them. We're polite, middle-class Adelaide Hills dwellers, most of us anyway. Some of us are not as polite, me probably. But um, anyway, the rest of it applies to you, I'm sure. Um, What we do is we just withdraw, don't we? We don't necessarily have huge fights, but we just withdraw. And we no longer really engage. We're polite. But really, is that to love and be loved without conditions? Is there something, and is there something in the passion story, the gospel narrative, that will actually give us a key to let us do this in a way that is so much bigger than just make an effort? I want to explore that under three headings. Love in action, love makes a way, and love overflowing. So let's start with love in action. If you've got your Bibles, have them open to uh, Luke 22. We're going to have a look at the the passage. The passion is a story of love, isn't it? Uh, John 3.16 summarises the gospel. God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave us Jesus. And this passage and the chapters around it are so much the centre that this is so much the display of God's love for us. The, The love of God saturates this passage. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see love in action. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Do you hear Jesus' concern? Concern for these 11 men, these friends, these compatriots, these co-workers. He's concerned, pray, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He goes away. He comes back and when he rose from prayer, he went to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted, exhausted from sorrow. What do you think Jesus says at that point? Does he get cranky? You slack bums, get off the backside and start praying. I told you to pray. No, he exhorts them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. A little bit later on, when one of them whips out his sword and lops off the ear of the high priest's servant, that's a dangerous thing to do. There's an arresting group there ready to get Jesus. It's easy to wrap up the other 11 and take them away as well. But Jesus, partially to save his disciples from that accusation of being rebels, he heals the man and thus spares his disciples. Judas comes in. Look at it there in verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. The man who was called Judas, one of the twelve. Luke is drawing out for us. This is a man who is part of that inner circle. 
This is a man that Jesus chose to be with him, that chose to minister with him. Jesus went up to a mountain, we read in the Gospels, and he prays for a night and he chooses 12 men. And Judas is one of them. He doesn't make a list. I want 11 really good, solid people and one complete scumbag who's going to betray me. No, he chooses 12 men. He chooses Judas. And Luke draws out for us that this Judas, one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest friends, comes up. And what does Jesus say? Well, what would you say? I can imagine a few choice phrases might come out of my mouth at that point. Uh, a little bit of anger, a little bit of hurt. This is someone so close. What does Jesus say? He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? With gentleness and compassion, he sets before Judas the hideousness of the act. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you with this most intimate expression, this intimate greeting, betraying me? We see the compassion for the enemies. He heals the man whose ear has been cut off. We see Jesus' endurance as he goes through this time, this time of intense agony, alone, unsupported, by his friends. Heaven helps, but earth is silent. We could look at this story, and if we followed Mr. Ward, make an effort, what do we do? We end up with Jesus as an example, don't we? Okay, a few years ago, these were really popular. Did anyone ever have a WWJD thing? Here's a quick aside. I went to Kurong one day and there was all these signs about shoplifting. And I thought, who on earth shoplifts from a Christian bookstore? Um, and so I asked them, I said, what kind of stuff gets nicked? Number one, WWJD <laughs> items. What wouldn't Jesus do? <laughs> Steal this. Like, how could you wear it? Every, you'd be rebuked every single time. What would you, oh, he wouldn't have flogged that. What would Jesus do? But we can end up, if we end up with a WWJD kind of Christianity, and can I say, Jesus is an example, but if that's where we leave him, we end up saying what Mr. Ward said, make an effort. But when we are confronted by the weakness of our friends, when we are confronted by the betrayal of those closest to us, those that we expected so much good from and they inflict so much hurt, when we face violent opposition, do we just grit our teeth, make an effort and I've got to love better? Because I can't do that. And if you are anything like me, you can't do that either, can you? You can't do it. How can we? Well, I think we've got to wrestle. We've got to wrestle with the fact of our own limitations. 
If we look at this story, where would you put yourself? Would you be resolutely standing there next to Jesus? The disciples are praying, but you're with Jesus. They're sleeping, but you're awake. The disciples whip out swords, but you're there with Jesus and you're showing compassion and grace to Judas. Where are you? I think the best we could say is asleep on the ground. But are we Judas? Who do we identify with? Interestingly, a bit earlier on in Luke 22, we have the story of the Last Supper. And Jesus says these words, kind of dinner table conversation 101 from Jesus, how to drop a clangor that would totally stop the dinner party. The hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Could you imagine what happened at that point? Everyone goes, ah, it's Judas. It's obvious, you know. Jesus asked for 11 good guys and one scumbag, and Jesus, Judas answered the scumbag ad. He didn't answer the good guys. And you know what? We went out preaching, and we preached the gospel, and people got saved. But can anyone remember anything, anyone that got saved under Judas's preaching? And you know what? We went out healing. We went out casting out demons and healing sickness and doing all those amazing things. I reckon, I reckon Judas was shooting blanks, you know? He was, you know, he wasn't doing it, but he was, and he did. It's so much so that in the next verse, they began to question which among themselves it might be who would do this, because the disciples know that the potential for betrayal is in each of them. As we look at Gethsemane, you could summarise it under the heading with friends like these, who needs enemies? With friends like these. And brothers and sisters, I think if we are honest with ourselves and we look at Christ and we look at what he models for us and what he calls for us to do, Matthew 5, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. We recognise that we wouldn't be with Jesus. We would be asleep on the ground or leading the crowd to arrest him. Our hearts need a new shape. Our hearts need to be broken down and reforged. And it is Christ who makes the way. There's more to this story. If you've got your Bibles there, look there at verse 41. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus prays. I don't know what you hear in that prayer, but I hear Jesus pleading with his father, begging his father, 
beseeching his father. If there is another way, if you are willing, take this cup. Take this cup from me. I hear terror as Jesus considers what is to come. And he prays there in verse 42. The angel strengthens him, but it gets worse. Look at verse 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, Jesus is in anguish. He is drenched in sweat. He is distressed beyond comprehension. How do we contrast this? Because there's been many martyrs through the ages who have bravely looked at death and said, bring it on, do your worst. Some of my favourites, Bishops Latimer and Ridley, burned at Oxford in 1555. Queen Mary trying to reverse the Reformation that had started in England just a little decade or so earlier, is rounding up the leaders and executing them or forcing them to recount. Latimer and Ridley refused and they were burnt. They say, this is Mr Latimer's words to Mr Ridley on the pyre. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace, in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. What courage. What courage. Play the man, Mr Ridley. Be strong. Be courageous. God is going to do great things. Why doesn't Jesus say, I am going to save the world. Wow. But he is distraught. He is devastated. He's begging his father. If there is another way, if you will, take this cup from me. And it is the cup that is so intimidating. In the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord was an image of judgment and wrath against sin. Psalm 75 In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The cup of the Lord full of foaming wine mixed with spices. The wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. This is the cup that Jesus sees coming for him. Isaiah spoke of it, Ezekiel spoke of it, Jeremiah spoke of it, of the terror of the cup of the wrath of the Lord. Richard Baxter says it like this, he says, Jesus' agony was not from fear of death, but from the deeper sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. Jesus looked into his immediate future and saw the wrath of God against sin. And it terrified him. For some of us, we find the whole wrath of God stuff a little unpleasant. 
We don't come to church for this. This is dark stuff, Cameron. You know, talk to us about love. That's what you said you were going to do, and now you're talking about the wrath of God. Can I say, you will never understand the love and grace of God unless you see it against the backdrop of your sin and the judgment that is rightfully yours. Unless you see the stars of grace against the blackness of our sin, grace will never shine. If you don't see that from what it is God has saved you, you will have a small view of his love. But the greater that you see your predicament, the greater you will conceive of his love. But maybe this morning you're not a Christian person and you're going, oh, that's all very primitive. But can I suggest you need judgment? Just accept the fact that there is a God. You want this God to judge and judge justly. Because you want the injustice in this world and the injustice that has been done to you to be set right. You may not be that keen on the injustice that you have inflicted on others being set right. But deep down in your heart, you want God to be a God who judges. And he is. And Christ is terrified. Brothers and sisters, we don't need Jesus merely as an example. That will never be enough. That will never be enough. We need more than this. We need to see our sin. We need to see that in us is Judas kissing Jesus again and again and again. The most vile betrayer of the one who has done nothing but good to us. We reject, we betray, we need to see it, and it needs to break our hearts. One of the troubles, there are many privileges, can I say, but one of the troubles about growing up in a Christian family is grace just seems ordinary. You need to see that the agony of the Lord Jesus in the garden is because he looked at what was by rights yours and was terrified. We need to see our sin, but we need to see our saviour, not just as an example, but in our place. We need to see his terror, see his anguish, hear those words of grace, not my will, but yours. As he takes that cup out of our hands, that cup of the wrath of God, and drinks it dry. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian faith. The fact that in Christ, God's wrath is drained dry. That is the heart of the gospel. That is how heaven is open to us. That is how his father is our father. And why we never need to fear 
what he feared. It is a gift offered freely, grace, and received with a faith that is purely empty hands, stretched out to receive the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, our sin should break our hearts, but his love should melt those pieces and reforge them, make us new. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. It is this love that does that. It is this love that then, as it fills up our emptiness, overflows with love for him and for others. I just want to spend some time sharing a little bit personally here about how I do this. Like you, I have been hurt by people. I've lived long enough, more than about three minutes. I think they smack you when you're born and stick needles into you, okay? I don't remember that, but uh, I didn't have to process that one. But I've had to process lots of other things. How does God's love for me work out in my life to help me love others? What the danger is, is when people sin against me, I tend to, and I'm sure you are the same, I tend to build up the gravity of their offence and minimise anything that I may have done. What I did was understandable, what they did was inexcusable. The first thing I have to do is resist that. The first thing I have to do is turn away from the one who has sinned or who I think has sinned against me and turn to myself before God. I need to see my sin. And I need to see that no matter what it is that they have done to me, what I have done against God is infinitely worse. What I have done against God is be the Judas again and again and again. Against the one who has done me no wrong, who has done no harm to me, I have rejected him. I have ignored him. I have let him down. I have betrayed him. I have taken him for granted. And as I see my sin, so I see his grace. And I know that he in Christ loves me still. My sin breaks my heart. His love melts those pieces. And as I see how much Christ gave for me, how much the Father loves me, as I am filled up, not with self-righteousness, but with a righteousness that comes from him, a knowledge of knowing who he has made me to be freely by his grace. As I come to once again appreciate his grace lavished on me, it is his love that overflows in me, that helps me to love those who have hurt me, those who have betrayed me, those who have let me down, rightly or wrongly. It is that love that makes all the difference. 
I cannot do it myself. It is what he does in me that makes that possible. Brothers and sisters, do you see the love of God? The extent to which you get that. The extent to which it is not just in your head, but in your heart. And overflowing in praise for God's love for us. To the extent to which you are convinced that in Christ there is nothing, there is nothing that stands against you. That in Christ there is nothing to fear. There is no cup of wrath that waits for you. To the extent that you accept that by his grace on the grounds of his merits, you are cherished, you are loved, delighted in. You are filled to overflowing and overflowing in love for God and for others. Brothers and sisters, sink yourself deep into the promises of grace, to the words of life and hope that he has given us. Come to the Father. You know how the man prays, I believe, help my unbelief. I love, help me love more. Help me see more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your beauty. Break my heart with my sin. Melt my heart with your grace and make me new. It doesn't mean it's always easy. Oh yeah, take one of these at bedtime and it'll all go away. It is a thing that you will have to do with some hurts every day again and again and again. But know that at the end, every tear will be wiped away as our Father opens heaven's gates and welcomes us in. Every pain will be dealt with. Every injustice will be righted. Brothers and sisters, be amazed at his love. Donald MacLeod said this, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that he faced death without fear, but for, his, for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew, and terrified by what he didn't know. He took damnation lovingly. When you understand that Christ did that for you, then, then you will know that you are loved and that will, by God's grace, through his spirit, mean that you can then overflow with love for others. Not try harder, but rest in his efforts, knowing that his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look at the garden. We see... We see the agony, we see your despair, your terror as you faced 
what we cannot fathom. Because we are not holy as you are holy. We do not grasp the true extent of our sin. But Lord Jesus, you did. You saw what it was that you were to bear. And you loved us to the end. Father, we pray that you would be at work in us. That by your spirit, you would break our hearts with our sin, but melt them with your grace. Help us to know you, to love you, to see your beauty and grace and mercy, so that we might love the unlovely. We might forgive those who have hurt us. We might be people who love because you first love us. And in the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is much to reflect upon there.